message today. Larry, for your thoughts, you know, it's, I always love it to, uh, I love to hear what people are saying before I speak and see how it just connects together. And I'm not going to repeat what he said, but much of what he said just uh, flows right into the lesson today. Now, he, he did say at the end something about time and stealing, and he wasn't promoting stealing. Uh, he was here last week, I think, when I talked about let him who steals steal no more. And so we want to emphasize that. We know that work is what we're what, what we're called to do. Um, thank Gary. Also, you know, I've worked with Gary uh, since 1987. And one when we first started working together in 97, then when I came back here from uh, the islands in 2006 and he came and it's just uh, it's been great uh, working with him. And one thing that he does well is he he helps us connect with our emotions. And that's a great thing uh, for some of you who are more like me, who are just kind of, we don't get really high, we don't get really low, we're just kind of, you know, stay in the middle there some, some way. Uh, what, what people like Gary do, they help us connect with our feelings because sometimes we just, we don't know how. And it's not that the feelings are where we start. We start with our mind. We start with our faith. And that's when we spend time digging into God's word, because that's how we know what we know is through the facts that we're going to be looking at. But, you know, if it stays there, it's just, um, oh, just we're the intellectual sterility or something. I don't know. You know, it's just. It would be boring just to have me around. But when you have someone like Gary connect us with, with the facts of the gospel and helps us connect it with song and we can engage in our emotions uh, to whatever degree that we're able to, it just helps us bring this all to life. And it's not because of Gary or because of me. It's because God has arranged it this way. He's created us to be this way. And everything he's saying today connects right with our lesson we know good news. We're going to talk about some good news today from 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. We know good news. And because if we know good news, we're going to want to share that good news. We're going to want to feel the good news. Not only know it in our minds, but also express it through our, our thoughts and our words and, and how we inter, interact uh, with one another. In 2007, there was a book that was published entitled, There is a God. And that wouldn't be so unusual, but for the subtitle and the man who wrote that book, the subtitle, I don't know if you can read it on the screen there, but it says, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And that's a good read if you want to read a book along this line. It was written by Anthony Flew. I heard about him when I was in college, and there was a debate between him and a and uh, another man, and, and uh, there was a lot of talk about it at that time. He debated a lot. He was probably one of the most prominent 20th century atheists. And yet, while he never became a Christian, he moved from atheism to theism. He, he moved from a belief in no God to a belief in there is, there must be God. And he did this based on the evidence that he studied, not, not the evidence from the scripture, but the evidence from the world, from science. And his goal, he said, was to go where the evidence led him. 
And so in his study of life, he went from an atheism to a, a theism. And that's precisely what John has done for us. That's what the writer, the uh, Apostle John, did for us. He has presented evidence. He began with his gospel, the gospel of John. We're in 1 John, but the gospel of John, where he talked about his eyewitness account with this man, Jesus, of the city of Nazareth, this carpenter, Jewish carpenter, a poor man. He recorded his life. He recorded the things that he said, the things that he saw, how he interacted with people, even these things we call miracles that occurred. He recorded his own misunderstanding of the events. He recorded his confusion at times when he dealt with Jesus. And then he began writing this letter, this uh, what we call the First John, the epistle of First John. And he began that by stating this literal, physical connection that he had with Jesus with these words. He says, that which we have heard, which we've seen, which we've looked at, which we've touched, the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. And he's referring there not to some nice poetry. It's beautifully written. That's actually beautifully written. But it's not beautiful writing. He's talking about this literal connection, this physical connection that he had with Jesus. And here's an interesting thing about evidence. No matter how much evidence is piled up in front of you on any subject... If you decide in your mind, I'm not going to believe that, you're not going to believe it. Let me give you an example. In 1981, Julie and I went to the country of uh, Venezuela, Caracas, Venezuela. And there's a picture of it right there. There. And I remember climbing on top of that mountain and looking over that 10 million uh, people lived in the city at the time. And it was, the country had a robust economy. They experienced probably the greatest freedom of any country in South America. And it was kind of like going to an exotic New York City, except it was cleaner and the people were more friendly, even though I couldn't even, I couldn't speak Spanish. But it was a wonderful experience. Then we moved overseas And I talked about the media last week. The media in Fiji doesn't report too much about what's going on in Venezuela when you're in the South Pacific. And so when we came back after several years in the South Pacific came back, I was shocked. I was really surprised to find out the condition of the country of Venezuela. And I haven't done a lot of reading or studying about it at this point. But basically it came under a dictatorship. And I was like, how did it go from that to a dictatorship? You go into the country now, there's some other photographs here from Venezuela, and you go down to to do some shopping, and you find a lot of empty shelves. I haven't been there, but this is what I've been told, pictures that I've seen. There's a lot of uh, protest march. There's riots. 
it's supposed to be a very dangerous place to be right now. You're not encouraged to go to that country. And it's all based in their their political uh, way of thinking now, the dictatorship that's going on. And yet, even based on the disasters that, is, that that country has gone through, the struggles that the, that country has gone to, people will argue that their form of government today is better for them than when it than 20 years ago. And I sit there and think in my mind, how in, how can you how can you argue that? I mean, I, I went through the stores in Venezuela. I had some of the best coffee in the world, by the way. It was great coffee. And you walk in the stores and they're just like our stores, full of things. And now they stand in line to get food. And people will say, no, they're better off now than they were under the previous government. You see, what I'm saying is it doesn't matter how much evidence we pile up on anything. You can still choose to ignore the evidence. You can still choose to argue the other way. If you're married to a philosophy, you'll live and die by that philosophy, even though all the evidence points in another direction. And so what has happened here from the Gospel of John to this letter, he's been presenting evidence over and over. And, and then it's evidence of who he was in the Gospel. And this letter he's saying, and here's how it works out. Here's the working out of this uh, th- of this evidence of who Jesus is. This, what we've been looking at in First John, is primarily to believers, to people who believe, who've said, yes, I've come to faith, I believe him. If you're a Christian, what he is saying is, how are you now going to live based on what I've presented to you? Well, how, how, what, what does this look like in your life? As I put this before you, As a believer, are you going to believe the working out of it? Or are you going to say, no, I'm not sure about that. And in the same way, we as Christians struggle with our faith. We struggle with our belief. And John says some really fantastic things that are that border unbelievable. And as we look at them, we need to approach and say, well, am I going to believe that? Am I going to live that out or am I going to ignore that evidence? He's helping those of us who have taken that testimony in the gospel. And the testimony in the gospel says something like this, that we, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I believe it's on our next uh, screen. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing we may have life in his name. He said, I've given you all this information, chapters 1 through 19, about this man that I interacted with. And he says, I wrote that, that you can believe in him. And by believing, you're going to have life. In his name. And now he takes that faith that many of us have stepped into. And he takes it a step further. And he says, now as we work out the practicalities of this new life. As we go through the struggles of just living. Gary shared with with us how uh, people in his life that he's close to died in the past week. And we struggle with that. I mean, a man dies and his wife has previously died. And there's two young people, 20 and 18 years old, that are left without their parents. And we struggle with that. And we think, why? And we're faced with opposition, opposition in this world and opposition on our workplaces. 
There's philosophies all around us that are just going this way and that way. And he says, now, those of us who have believed in the son of God. Now, what do we do it? What do we do with that? And he says, I've written this. I've written this little letter so that we who believe in the name of the son of God, in the character of the son of God, in the character that we've seen here and what he has done, that you may know that you may know you have eternal life. You see, it's really hard to go to the first step. In a sense, it's hard. It's difficult to go to that first step from unbelief. I, I'm just looking at the world and whatever and look at the evidence of Jesus and say, OK, I'm, I'm putting my faith in that person. I, I, I believe that he was the son of God. That takes a step of faith, but it doesn't stop there. Once you're in that faith, then there's steps to take to say, and based on him, I also believe some other things, too. I'm going to put some other things into practice in my life. In uh, verses 18, 19, and 20, he's summing up everything. Everything he's been uh, he's saying is he's summed up in these three words, in these three verses. And he, he brings them back to the forefront of our mind. He says them in a little bit different way, but everything he's been saying in, in, in all, all uh, the first five, in these five chapters, he sums it up in this conclusion. And he begins by saying, we know these things. The first thing he says is, we know we don't live in the condition of sin. Now, you see, it's going to take, you, it's going to take faith to believe that. And let me just read in verse 18. He says here, um, we know anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one born of God who was born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. From the very first chapter, we were told that we as Christians do sin. We do sin. And as I pointed out when we talked about this, he's talking about even though we do sin, we're not in the dominion of sin. We're not in the condition of sin. We're not in the kingdom of sin. We sin, but that's not who we are. We are people of God. Our lives are ones who we live out the life of God in our life. He is our source of life. It's where we, where we derive our eternal life from that he's given us. And if you think about it, that's why when you sin, you're uncomfortable. Have you noticed that as a Christian? When you sin, it's an uncomfortable feeling. You fret about it. You feel guilty about it. If it wasn't real, why would you feel guilty about it? If it wasn't real, why would you fret about it? Why are you embarrassed sometimes about your thoughts and your attitudes? Why does that embarrass you? You know, when we all get together and I know we used to do this in college. We don't do it too much as adults. Sometimes we get together and we start just talking about things and we just kind of spill our guts type thing. And it's embarrassing when we start telling people how we think sometimes. Why is that? Because that's not who we are. You know that's not how you live. You know that's not who you are. And that's why you don't like it. And that's why you struggle against it. Because it's not you. You are a new person. You now are born again. You're a new creature. You, you're living a new life. You have eternal life within you. And when you act different than that, you don't like it. It's a terrible thing. Second, secondly, 
In verse 19, we have a clear view or we know how the world operates. Verse 19, he says, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. I think we spent a couple of lessons looking at that. Our worldview, how we walk through this world, how we see the world keeps us in balance. We understand it. We understand what's going on around us. We're not thrown out of sync. We're not flabbergasted when the world system rears its ugly head. Chaos ensues. When, when we see all the things that happen in the news, the, the, the riots that we talked about and other things that go on. When we see those things happen, as Christians, we, we go through the world and say, well, that's how the world acts. That's how this world system is. This is how we expect nothing less than that. We're children of God. We're walking through a world that that is different. That's when we we go to what Larry was saying about hope. We have hope. This is a sure expectation of something God has promised. And so we go through this life. We expect to get mugged by life. That just happens. We know it. And it should never surprise us. And John says, don't be surprised when these things happen. We're children of God. We have this foundation. The winds and waves of the world system cannot rock us. And now we go into the third one, verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come. He's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. This last one is built on the previous uh, uh, knowledge that we have. We know truth. And this is a foundational rock. This knowledge is even deeper than the worldview that we just talked about. We walk through the world. We see the world in its reality. We're not fooled by the way the world lives. Sometimes it acts really, really, really nice. And it's very, very attractive. And we say, isn't this wonderful? But we're not really fooled by that. This is even deeper. You take you take away this, you take this away from me, and I'm as weak and as unstable as the world around me. Take this away. There's no truth. There's only opinions. What you think's fine. What I think's fine. If you take away verse 20, I have nothing. If you take this away, I've said this before, I'm going fishing. In fact, if what what I'm showing here is not true, you will do me a favor by showing me it's not true. Because I have better things to do. I would have better things. I don't have better things to do, but I would have better things to do if this is not true. This is the best thing for me right now, since this is, is true. Show me your evidence. Show me this isn't true. And so we're going to look at two solid truths and one result. And in truth, in truth, we're going to look at two solid truths and we're going to look at the result of that in our next lesson. Number one, we know the Son of God has come. And this is, this is factual knowledge. We know this. Uh, I've called this book knowledge. This is, uh, this is intellectual knowledge. This is information that we have. John uses two words when he uses the word know, K-N-O-W. And one is this intellectual up in our brain knowledge, and the other one is knowledge by experience, and we need both of them. It's kind of like when Julie and I do premarital counseling. We'll have a couple that have never been married before, and they come in, and we start talking about the principles of marriage. 
And when they're young, and if, if this did not, if, we, if you're sitting in the audience and we premarital counseled you, I'm not thinking of you. It might include you, but it might not. But they'll sit there and smile and shake their heads. Mm-hmm, yeah. And, they're, they're th- and you can just read their minds saying, we know all this. We've heard this before. Our marriage is going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. We're in love more than anyone else has ever been in love. Why are you telling us this stuff? Until a year later, when they're married and they come back and say, you know, now I know. Oh, they knew here, but they didn't know an experience. And there's a difference between knowing something and actually getting in there and getting involved. I, I know how a, a combustion engine, what's it called? A combustion, I can't even say it. The engine, combustible engine, internal combustion. See, there's some people smarter than me here. At least on engines. I know the concept of that. And I've taken one engine apart in my life. But I don't know it. I don't know it. Especially engines today. I don't even know where the spark plugs are anymore. I can't find them. Open up. Where's the spark plugs? Can't see them. But, you know, there's a difference between knowing and knowing. There's a difference between having it up in your brain and actually being experienced in, uh, in it. And all three of these knows that we've read in verse 18, 19, 20 is the one up in your brain. It's facts. It's intellectual knowledge. He says, we know this. This is what you've been taught. This is the information you've been given. And how do we know this fact? How do we know these? Because John has said, this is what I've given to you. From the very beginning, when, when, we first, when you first started learning about Jesus, this was the information that was given to you. And it circles all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, which we mentioned before, of what he experienced, what he saw, what he touched, what he handled. And he gave this information on to us, and he passed it to us and said, look, That's what happened. And this knowledge, this information that we have is life changing. As we work it out, as we get into the practical working out of this intellectual knowledge, it becomes real. We begin to see what's going on. It reveals the world around us, the reality of the world as we talked about. We see the world as it really is. It clarifies our thinking where we can have clear thinking here. And it's all centered in the Son of God. It's kind of like this. Some of you who are far smarter than me and Lee know stuff about rockets, right? And I saw Sarah hard somewhere at one point. Wherever she, if she's walked out on me, it's okay. But I saw her sometime. And back a while back, there was a rocket that, that they fired off somewhere. That, I, don't, see, I don't even know the name of it. Some of you do. The, the new rocket they fired off recently that worked. Yeah, you know, it worked. All right. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like me. You have no idea. But she knew and the, all the engineers and all the people working that they knew on paper, factually, this is what happens. This is how this rocket works. But they were so excited when they went out to the field. They were so excited about going off there and seeing it. Why? They wanted to see the practical working of that. And they got all excited and they posted it on Facebook and they, you know, it was all over the place. How wonderful it was that this rocket went off. The rest of us just lived our life in ignorant bliss. But, you know, that's what I'm saying. We, we can know something in our brain and go, yeah, this is how it works out. Yeah. But when we actually see it in practice, we can get excited about it and we say, yeah, that works. I understand how it's working here. And so here we have these no's. It's, it's what we know in our brain. But we're going to know more about it. 
Number one, the first solid truth is we know he has come. He's come. There's two words, two particular words, as you read through the Greek New Testament, that use this word come. And the most common one is used 632 times. I didn't count them. I read it in a, in a book that tells you about it, a lexicon, all this. 632 times, and it just means coming, just like in English, the action of coming. But this word is used far less. It's used 26 times, and there's a nuance there that's, that's deeper. It speaks not only the action of coming, he has come, but it lays a stress on the actual presence of the person. It's a little nuance. If you'll think about it, it makes a big difference. It points more to the person who is coming rather than the action of his coming. And so the focus is on the person. Perhaps it wouldn't be reading too much into it to say he, with emphasis, he has come. And also further, the, the, the tense of the verb here speaks of something that happened in the past, but it has a present reality. There's something that's going on right now. Something happened in the past. His birth, he came. He, he was born into this world in his life. And now there is now, 2,000 years later, a present and ongoing result because of that. His life wasn't just a historical event, but it was a coming that now has actions and results in our current life. Jesus, if you think about it, when he entered this world, he changed everything. The direction of the world changed at his coming. Salt entered into the world. Light entered into the world. It preserved the world. I thought about writing a book. What if Jesus didn't come? And it's, and, and it's mind-boggling it's just to think about that, much less write something on this. But can you imagine the world if there had never been a Jesus? It, it, I mean, go to the Louvre in France. Most of the paintings, paintings would be gone. Isaac Newton based his modern science based on his belief in God and the Christ. Where would we be in science if it wasn't for Jesus? A lot of bad things have happened even with him here. But it, might, it would be far worse. He changed people. People went from dark lives, living in lies, with no direction other than their feelings and thoughts, to lives of truth, of light, of direction, of clarity, that can only be termed eternal life. That's why he calls it eternal life, because we're thinking right now. We're thinking correctly now. We see the world as it really is. And, and there was a change of relationships. We went from being enemies of God to being children of God. And that's why the Son of God came. He's the one who came, no less than God himself, entered into the world. What the world needs today is not a good philosophy to live by. We need the one who created the world to come into the world and show us how to live. But I want you to think about that. It's far more than just showing us how to live. If God just came to this world to show us how to live, it would be a source of continual frustration. I know the good I ought to do. And I have a hard time doing it. We all do that. 
we know the good we ought to do and we can't do it. Well, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. And we struggle with that. And so if all God did was come into the world and say, okay, this is how you do it. We would just live as failures. We can't do it. Showing us how, how to be like God when we can't is no use to us. We live in that constant frustration. We're only trying to live up to a standard that we can't live up to. Live up to a standard of an achievement we cannot achieve. So it had to be more than that. And that's when we come to the second solid truth. The gift. We've been given a gift. We can't do it. Try. Try and live the perfect life. You can't do it. So whatever the purpose of the Son of God and His coming is, if it doesn't, if He doesn't give something to us, if it doesn't come as a gift, we're destined to fail. We'll try hard. Some of us will try harder than others. But we fail. We can't be consistent enough. You can't be good enough. You can't be smart enough. You can't be strong enough. You can't be intelligent enough to live up to this life of, of, of achieved perfection. You just can't do it. You know, I, you know I, I used to write down my New Year's resolutions. In the recent years, I've, I've kind of had one or two little goals. But that's as far as I've gone. But I used to have a list when I was young. And I was determined to do it. And it lasted a week. That was pretty good, actually. You just can't, you can't be consistent. And if perfection in a relationship is based on anything else but a gift from God, will never arrive. If perfection, which I believe we have achieved in Christ, is not a gift, we'll never get it. He says he has given this. I love that. I, I'm, this past week when I was thinking, I skipped over that word. And this is why I go slowly, because you can skip over words, and you've read them a thousand times, and you never see the meaning of it. But he says, and he has given us understanding. Has given. That makes it clear. This is a gift. He's given it to you. You didn't work for this. And it's only through our human pride and our human weakness that we attempt to achieve what we can never achieve. When we look at the Bible and we just see a lot of do's and don'ts, well, the Bible tells us what to do and what not to do. And we, we look at it that way. All that is is your pride saying, yeah, I can do this. No, you can't. It, it's really your weakness trying to express itself and you just you can't do it. You can't live the way that we want to live. And 90 percent of the times this word is used in the Bible. Guess who is talking about? Guess who is giving? Ninety percent of the time the word is used to give. It's talking about God giving something to people. And yet we read the Bible and we see the 10 percent where we're supposed to be doing something. And we put that stress in our life and we have such a, a me centered gospel. We have a gospel that's centered around what I'm doing and how well I'm doing. No wonder we're frustrated. And that's why we need to be brought back to this where John says he is the one who has given us this Christianity. Is God-centered. Have you heard that before? Have you heard that from 1 John? I don't. I, I need to go back through all my sermons and just count how many times I've said that the gospel is God-centered. What he's done is Christ-centered. It is a Christ-centered living. It's a Christ-centered from, from conversion to our lives now. It's all about him. It's not about us. He gives what we cannot get for ourselves. And what does he give us in this context? All he says is understanding. 
He gives us a lot of things. Read the other the 90% of the times he uses. He gives us lots of things. But here he says he gives us understanding. An interesting word. It's called a compound word. It comes from two different words. One, the first part of it, dia, means through, like going through something. And the other one is the word to think. To think through a thing. To reflect. To meditate. God doesn't zap us. That's not the understanding. We're not just walking along thinking about roasting marshmallows and God gives us this understanding. It's not that way at all. We're not just off here in some place and suddenly, boom, God gives us this understanding. There's a responsibility on our part. We have to think things through, but he gives us the ability to think things through, to think this out, to look at the evidence, to go through it with our minds, to reflect on it, to meditate on it. And it's a gift. God has given us this gift of the ability to have this evidence and to think it through. And it's not just any evidence, but the evidence that is continually laid out in front of us over and over. And this evidence isn't complex. It's not so complex that, that it only takes a genius to understand it. It's not so complex that it's difficult to think it through. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, listen to this. Brothers, think of what you were, you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. Those are the people we look up to. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him and say, look what I did. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not that complex. I think one of Anthony Flew's problems when I've read the little bit I've read about him is he just made it too complex. It's not that hard to understand. It's a very simple message. At the same time, it's deep. And the message is this. Outside of Christ, you're in a state called death. You're going to die. You need life. That's what you need. And so the Son of God came to take your place in death and to give you life. You just need to rely on Him. You need to put your faith in Him. You need to turn from yourself. You need to center your life in Him. And you do this in this simple act of obedience through immersion, like we looked at uh, Mr. Wright back there. I remember your last name because it's a wonderful last name last week. My last name is Wright. Put them on in baptism. And that's just simply saying, I can't do this. You have to do it for me. And he says, and and we have this relationship at that point. It's living out the application that we read in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. There's true truths we know. We know the Son of God has come. We know that up here. And we know that what we've been given is a gift. Now, how does that work out? 
I'm sorry, I can't go through all, one verse in, two, in one lesson because you're not going to sit here for two hours. <laughs> but we have, this, is, this is where our ground is. These truths, this is where we're, we're firm. I know the Son of God has come. And I know he, what I, whatever I have is a gift from Him. Even the understanding is a gift from Him. We're saved by grace through faith. Not of yourself. It is a gift of God. If anyone needs to be helped in a public way, we're going to offer you an invitation as our custom is. Our elders will come forward. They'll receive you. If you need prayers for the church for any reason that you didn't put on the blue card, please feel free to come up as we stand and as we sing.